We're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 18 this morning, and we're going to be reading verses 9 through 14 together. But before we do, I wanted to share with you a little bit about, I'll give you a little picture of who I was before I came to Bethany. Back in the day, I was part of a Christian club called the Awana Program. It was kind of like the scouts in that you performed certain tasks, you memorized certain things, and then you earned, you earned badges, you earned trophies, all that kind of stuff. I excelled at Awana. I was like Mr. Awana. I started late in the game. It was like uh, the third year of Sparkies, and in that, that one-year window, I finished all three Sparky books in one year, and everyone went, whoa, who is this guy? Well, I went on from there to every week after week, say my sections, do the verses, do the projects, do everything faster than everyone else in that particular club. And by the time I reached fifth grade, I had so many awards and medals on my Awana shirt. Look at that. I looked like the Awana four-star general. And you know, I felt like a general. I walked the halls of Grace Church of Glendora every Wednesday night with my chest puffed out, my head held high, and I thought that I was doing the whole club a favor. I thought that by parading myself around, that all those little kids, they would see all of the brass on my shirt, and they would, they would be inspired to do great things themselves. Oh, how deceived I was. Looking back, I, I, I'm so ashamed. I, I can't even believe at how full of pride I was when I was in that Awana program. It was just shameful. What a sight it must have been. How silly, how self-absorbed can you get? I thought in a way that I was, I was like a hero for God when all I was doing was worshiping myself and hoping other people would do the same. Have you ever been there? You and I may not go around wearing trophies and badges on our shirts, but there are certainly times when we're tempted to show off our accomplishments, how high we've risen on the spiritual totem pole. And when we do so, we follow in the footsteps of a man Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 18. Let's read about him together. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Again, it's Luke chapter 18, and we're beginning off in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Jesus talks about two men. They're in the same place doing the same thing, and yet they stand in stark contrast to one another. One stood confident, the other stood broken. One looked down on others, everyone he saw, and the other was looked down upon by just about everyone. One gloated, and the other grieved, and Jesus says one went home justified, and the other did not. When it comes to life in the church, have you and I come to grow, or have we come to gloat? Are we here to worship and cry out to God, or have we come so that others might somehow worship us? Is church a place where we come to meet with God's people and humbly look to our Savior for guidance and growth, or has it become a platform for us to parade ourselves around so that everyone could see how glorious we are? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, that is the most repulsive suggestion I I have ever heard. How can you even go there? That any Christian would, would come to a place like this just to make much of themselves, to gain for themselves praise and promotion, to be so conceited as to thank God that that they're holier than everyone else. That's just unthinkable. How disgusting, how repulsive, I would never, how ridiculous. There's a song by one of the great artists of our time, Weird Al Yankovic. (laughs) Not recommending him to any of you, but in one particular song, he pokes fun at religious pride by saying this. Think you're really righteous? Think you're pure in heart? Well, I know. I'm a million times as humble as thou art. That song makes me laugh because it's just utterly ridiculous. I mean, I mean to say that you're more humble than somebody else is, is to, you're, you're, you're convicting yourself. You're not humble at all. You're full of pride. You've got to be pretty dumb to be that guy. But we've got to remember even though the picture that Jesus paints of this Pharisee, we may look at that and we may say, that is really extreme. I would never do that. We've got to remember that when the tempter comes, the temptation is often subtle. So subtle. Satan may prowl around like this roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. And yet at the same time, he knows full well that you catch far more prey if you don't show your teeth. The temptation for us to take our place up on the pedestal, it, it, it often doesn't seem unbecoming of a Christian. We have all these reasons to justify that kind of behavior or that kind of thinking or that kind of speech. And we think that, well, I'm, I'm a defender of the truth. 
or I'm an example to the flock, or I'm a pillar of righteousness, a gleaming symbol, a testimony to Christ our King, or I'm a seasoned veteran, I'm a reservoir of knowledge, and I need to give these gifts to all who come in contact with me. Or you know what? I need to be an inspiration to others of the marvelous work that God does and and show them just how far I have come. Or maybe we think that we're somehow prophets of morality sent by God to convict those unrighteous ones out there. Whatever it may be, so very often we justify. And it doesn't look glaringly self-absorbed to us in the moment and we're caught up in it. Christians, we need to beware of the ugly seeds of pride that take root within our hearts. They sprout up when we hear a sermon and, and it sounds familiar. We say, oh yeah, yeah I, I've heard this one before. I've got this. Maybe, maybe someone else will get something out of this. I, I'll just kind of sit here, look at my phone. Or they bloom when we're, we hear a song and we're thinking, you know, this one's, just too, this one's too fast, this one's too slow, this one's too shallow, or this one's too wordy. This, I'm not really sure about the style of this one. Or the worship team really doesn't seem to be doing this justice. So, so I'll, I'll, hold off. I'll hold off. Maybe I'll worship God on the next song. They bear fruit when we see a brother or sister out in the courtyard and we look at them and we go, man, what a mess they've made of their life. Several years ago, I was at a Christian camp up in Crestline. It was a camp for junior high students, and we had just walked out of one of our, our morning sessions. We had, we had worshipped, we had listened to the Word, and to my surprise, my students came out of this session and they were tearing apart the worship team. They were ripping on the style. They were ripping on the songs, saying there's no depth to these. Was that even honoring to God? I mean, look at how those even worshipers on stage were conducting them. So that didn't seem right. That's not how our church does it. And as you were saying all these things, I got to admit, for, for a brief moment, I thought, man, I'm so proud of these guys. <laughs> I mean, they actually listened Sixth, seventh, and eighth graders actually listened to some things that I had been teaching them about how we glorify God. And they're thinking through how, what it means, how it should be put into practice. But you know, at the same time, it hit me. I had been bringing up some arrogant, self-righteous, spiritually superior, holier-than-thou students. I agreed with everything that they were saying, but at the same time, the things that they were saying and the way they were saying it revealed that there were some very concerning things going on inside of their hearts. So we grabbed the group and we huddled on the lawn and we turned to Matthew 7 and we read Jesus' words, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to a brother, let, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a, there's a log in your own eye? Jesus said, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And after that, we talked about how it's important 
to think about the way that we worship God. It is so important. But when we see others doing a poor job of it, our first thought should be, Lord, are there ways in which I am not worshiping you as I ought? I should be first looking at myself. The Pharisees' eyes, they were on his trophies and on his stats. The things that he had accomplished that were evidence in his mind of his spiritual maturity, of his spiritual growth. And we fall into that trap sometimes too. And we measure ourselves by how many classes we've taken or how many classes we've taught. Or the number of mission trips we've been on. The number of people we've led to Christ. The number of years that we've been at a church. The number of verses that we've memorized or books that we've read. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, they aren't measured by stats and trophies. I mean, Paul listed off his greatest accomplishments, and in Philippians 3, 7 said, but whatever I had gained, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Pharisee's eyes were on his trophies, on his stats. Not only that, the Pharisee also played a game by, that's called justification by comparison. It's an easy game to play, and one that we often play without even realizing that we're doing it. All you have to do to win is make sure that you're better than somebody else. And you win. Justification by comparison. You should try it sometime. No, don't try it. In the Pharisee's case, he thanked God that he wasn't like other men. He said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fight fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. That's what my students at camp were doing. Not in so many weird words. They were, they were saying, we're so much more right on than those guys over there, those so-called Christians. We would never sing songs that shallow or in such an irreverent way. But what they, the Pharisees, and sometimes we ourselves, fail to keep in mind is that the unrighteousness and inadequacies of others don't make us more righteous. This isn't junior high mathematics. God doesn't grade on a curve. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to fall short is to lose. You don't somehow partially fall short and God looks at you and says, well, you just missed the mark by a little. No, you fall short of the glory of God. You are condemned. James tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law, every single bit of the law, but fails in one point, He's guilty of all. And so you may have heard before, it only takes one crime to be a criminal. It only takes one lie to be a liar. 
It only takes one theft to make you a thief, and it only takes one affair to make you an adulterer. Without Christ, we all stand on level ground before a holy God, and that is not a good place to be. Because we stand guilty, we stand condemned, we stand fully deserving of God's anger and his judgment. That's where we stand without Christ. What a sad picture. But in Christ, we're all covered by the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And may I say, Christ's righteousness, it is full, it is complete righteousness. It's not possible to get more righteous than Christ's righteousness. And because of Jesus, that righteousness is applied to you and to me. If we've placed our trust in Christ we are utterly and completely righteous. Without Christ, we stand on level ground, condemned. With Christ, we stand with soil under our feet that is level as well. It's level. So there's no room for the justification by comparison game. It's pointless. The only reason that you or me are justified depends not on us proving ourselves to be better than others, but on Christ proving himself gloriously superior to all and then imparting it or imputing it, to use a theological term, imputing it, that superior righteousness unto us. So how do you move from the ground of the condemned to the ground of the forgiven and the righteous? Well, you don't do it by trusting in your accomplishments, do you? You do it by acknowledging, instead, your failures. You acknowledge your lowly condition, admitting your need, humbly looking up to Jesus and trusting that he paid for your sins on that cross, and he now clothes you in righteousness. Jesus makes it very clear in this passage, the Pharisee was not justified. It was the tax collector. It was the notorious crook. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The ones who are lifted up are the ones who beat their chests knowing that they're lost. They cry out to God that, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. They call on Jesus, and as a result, the high and holy one who dwells in unapproachable light, he swoops down and picks them up. That's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You only hunger and thirst for righteousness when you know you don't have it. They will be satisfied. First Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you know this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 15? This is one of my favorites. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. 
That's a fact. And also, with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, you and I, no matter how accomplished we may be, we have nothing to brag about because apart from God's great mercy, we're nothing. We stand on level ground with the condemned. The song says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. So let's take a moment, let's reel this in and pull it up on deck and let's examine it in light of life in the church. What does this say about what a healthy Christian, a healthy church member looks like? It says simply this, a healthy Christian is not someone who thinks that they have arrived. They never think themselves to be more spiritually superior than anyone else. They don't parade around their trophies, their medals, or even quietly believe themselves to be a cut above the rest. No, no. They're not under the impression that given a few more years, they're going to, be, they're going to reach Jesus Jr. status, and they're going to go walking out on that water. They're not thinking that at all. No, a healthy Christian is one who is humble, one who is keenly aware of their need for Jesus and his ongoing work, that refining work. In their life, they realize that that because of Jesus, they are righteous in God's sight. But they also realize the righteousness that they now positionally have before God, that righteousness, it needs to be applied each and every day to their life that they might exemplify the righteousness that they now have in Christ. You know, with each step they make toward maturity in Christ, they realize. I am not there yet. I have so much more maturing to do. Healthy Christians, they don't go to church to show off. They go to church so that they might be discipled. Healthy Christians are here to be discipled. What does it mean to be discipled? To be discipled is to be brought up in the ways of a certain discipline. Just like uh, you might learn a certain discipline of a certain type of profession, maybe to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be a plumber. Others uh, join a certain discipline uh, for a certain school of thought. And so they discipline themselves in that school of thought, and it reflects in the way they write and the way they talk and the way they live their lives. For those who are in Christ, they seek to be brought up in the discipline of being a follower of Jesus. It's the process by which a person learns and then orders their life in a way that aligns with Jesus. Healthy Christians, they know that they need this. They know that they need discipline. And you might be thinking, discipline? I don't want discipline. I don't like the sound of that. I do everything I can to try to avoid discipline. And you're not alone. But what we often fail to realize is that discipline doesn't exist just to punish, but it helps to bring us in line with what is right. If I fail to discipline my child for throwing a screaming fit 
throwing themselves on the floor in the middle of the mall. And they're just going crazy, kicking, screaming. If I fail to discipline them, to correct that behavior, then I'm doing them a, a complete disservice. And they're going to grow up and they're going to have habits ingrained in them that were never addressed. And that is going to trip them up when they're adults. Christians know that they need discipline. They came to Christ in the first place recognizing their life was a mess. And now after having trusted in Jesus, they continue to see those different areas of their life. I see that over there. I see that over there. Oh, I hate what I see over there. And they realize they need Christ to continually change them. They not only know that they need that discipline, but they actually seek out that discipline. They desire it. They seek to embrace it in the local church. Healthy Christians, they seek out and embrace discipline the same way you and I would if we, we got a gym membership and we signed up to get a personal trainer. We do it not because we just hate ourselves and enjoy pain. No, we do it because we know we need this. I know I'm out of shape. I need to get fit. And so I go to this gym and I'm hoping this trainer is just going to, man, he's going to get me there. He's going to yell at me a little. He's going to encourage me. The same way in the church. We come here, healthy Christians come here knowing we need discipline. And you know, discipline comes in two forms. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. And both are necessary and both are good. Paul talks about them in his second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, we read this a couple weeks ago. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So God's given us his word that we might be trained in righteousness, that we might become more mature in Christ, might look every day more and more like Jesus. But you notice, there's, if you break those four things down, they really fall into two categories there. The righteousness of Christ needs to be developed in us as we are trained, as we're, he says, teaching and training, that's formative discipline, and through reproof and correction. The formative side is as we consume God's word, we study it, we apply it to our lives, we're formed into people who look more like Jesus. That's good. We need that. Because healthy Christians want their attitudes, their thoughts, their actions, they want all of themselves to be more and more like Jesus. So they look to the Bible. And they're listening to sermons. And they're reading God's word on their own. And they're attending Bible studies. And they're talking about spiritual things with other Christians. They want that formative discipline in their life. It's a good thing. But God's word also disciplines us through reproof, through correction. And this is the side of discipline that we often so don't want in our lives, but so desperately need. And the reality is, we should want this kind of discipline in our life. So if I pay that personal trainer to be uh, watching me and keeping tabs on me and making sure I'm hitting the weights the way I should and doing my cardio the way I should, and he sees me over in the corner and I'm on that exercise ball and I'm just kind of bouncing up and down eating a Twinkie in the corner, he needs to come correct me. If he doesn't yell at me and scream at me and say, what on earth are you doing? Then he's not doing his job. I want him to do those things because I know I need discipline. 
I know that in and of myself, I'm going to veer down the wrong path. It's inevitable. And I need someone to come and pull me back, bring me back. Jesus told us what corrective discipline in the church should look like in Matthew chapter 18. He lays out this process for how we should do this when a brother or sister sins against you. We need to hold each other accountable. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, if someone in a church is living a sexually immoral life, they're to be confronted and they're to be thrown out, he says. Their church membership needs to be taken away. And he's not telling us that so that we can just be mean to each other. That's not the point here. The point is that all of us, from one time to another, we need that corrective discipline. And if we don't get it, it could be detrimental to our souls. If someone claims to be a Christian, they join our church, yet is involved in some type of sinful lifestyle, and then for their sake, oh, we've We've got to confront it. What a terrible thing it would be if we saw someone in our congregation diving into a lifestyle of sin and we said, you know what, I really just, I, that's so wrong and it so bothers me, but I really don't want to offend them and I really don't want them to feel bad about themselves and, and, and all these negative thoughts and I, I want them to like me and maybe if I just play it cool and maybe if I just go take them out to Starbucks, then we'll just, you know, we'll just keep going the way we are and everything will be happy But no, what a terrible thing we would be doing to them. Letting them go down this course away from Christ towards their destruction. I can't think of anything more unloving. If we don't confront sin, we're not loving each other. And so if you see me falling into some type of sinful behavior... (laughs) Part of me doesn't want it, but, but, I, but I know I need it, so I do want it. I need you to come alongside me. And I need you to lovingly tell me, Jared, that is not what Scripture says is becoming of a Christian. You need to course correct here, because this is the, these are the very things why Christ came to give his life. This, this, this course of action here, this brings the wrath of God, and it brings destruction to you. You need to turn from this, and you need to come back. And realign yourself with Christ. I need that corrective discipline. And we need to be ready to give that to each other. Discipline's good. We need it. Because we're all imperfect human beings, we need the formative discipline. We need the corrective side of discipline that jolts us back when we've wandered off. So as a healthy Christian, someone who at least desires to be healthy, How do you go about seeking out and embracing discipline? Let me just very quickly suggest two ways. First, receive God's word with meekness. With meekness, James 1.21 tells us, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now a lot of people, when they hear the word meekness, they immediately think of weakness, but the two are not synonymous. To To be weak is to lack strength. To be meek is actually to show strength by willingly restraining and submitting yourself. It sometimes means to shut your mouth so that someone else may speak. In relation to God's word, that means placing yourself in a position where you sit under it 
rather than above it. It means that when you hear God's word, you do so trusting that God is sovereign. And what he wrote in here is, is what he intended to be heard, and that you need to hear it, and, and it is going to transform your life. It means when you listen to a sermon, you're not asking, do I like what I'm hearing? Is this guy putting me to sleep? Am I going to be like that guy that heard Paul and he fell out the window and died? Am I going to be like that? Is that what this pastor's? No, instead you're sitting there thinking, what does the Lord have to teach me today? How does God want to use his word to make me more like Jesus? I like what one pastor wrote. I won't even try to pronounce his name. As we come to the scripture, we are to do so as people knowing our sinful nature, our spiritual poverty before God, and our need for the molding influence of God, which comes normally by his word. We seek out and embrace discipline by receiving God's word with meekness. We also do it by welcoming discipline. Welcoming discipline, what a concept, as an expression of of love from God. God's in the process of completing, bringing to completion that work that he began in each and every one of us who first trusted in Jesus. His aim isn't to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. His aim is to make you holy. And discipline is part of that process. And when God corrects you or uses the church to correct you, you got to realize that God is doing so because he loves you. He wants you to be like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 9 says, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more, much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when you and I receive discipline, we got to be asking ourselves, if this is, could this be God's way of leading me back to himself? And if that's the case, this discipline might be painful. Oh, but boy, is it good. Because there is no better place to go than back to God. Rather than getting all defensive, preparing some type of retaliatory attack, we need to be thanking God for disciplining us in his mercy as a loving father would. Discipline is a good thing. Healthy Christians don't go to church to parade themselves around and say, everybody look at me, how gloriously wonderful I am. No, healthy Christians are here to be discipled. They know they need discipline. They came to Christ in the first place in humility, in sin, and in shame. And they know that they now stand positionally in Christ's righteousness. They're clothed with it. They can't get any more righteous. And yet at the same time, they know that that righteousness needs to be practically worked into every facet of their lives. And because of that, they seek out and embrace discipline in their local church. And as they do, God's Holy Spirit, working through his word, he molds and he shapes them. He chips off and sands down 
the rough edges. He waxes and polishes them to a gleaming finish that they might brightly reflect the glory of God to all around. Healthy Christians are here to be discipled. Let's pray. And we'll pray for our offering as well. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of discipline, Lord. We thank you for that formative discipline that you give us in your word, and thank you for the corrective discipline of the church, Lord. The end in all of it is that we might look like Jesus Christ and be conformed to his image, and as we do so, point others to how beautiful you are, that they themselves might come to you and say, Lord, I don't want to stand on the ground of the condemned. I want to trust Jesus and stand on level ground with the forgiven with the righteous. Lord, we thank you for your incredible goodness towards us. We pray that we would walk from this place this morning experiencing your grace in a fresh new way and with a renewed desire to be disciples, to be people who come to be discipled, that we might look more like Jesus. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.